Would you join me as we come to that together in prayer before our God? Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You have turned man to destruction and said, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, like a watch in the night. You, O Lord, are forever. We are not. The creation is not. And yet you maintain it for a time as we come before you, recognizing what you have done, recognizing how you have made your world, recognizing what you have done with us. We are in awe. For while we could have been turned to destruction, and were it not for your grace, we would have been, we have been consumed by your anger. We're terrified by your wrath. But you have not left us there. Turn us again, O Lord. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Have compassion on your servants and satisfy us early with your mercy that we may rejoice. And we do rejoice, Lord, in the things that you have done even in this past week. The synod has met and most of the synod came home safely and Nathan Fenby is recovering from that accident on Thursday night. Though his injuries are not serious, you have been merciful. Dennis came home safely, even if it was late at night. You have been with us. You answered the request that we made to Synod for the funding of Emmanuel in Pella, our daughter congregation. It was not only funding, but also the status being recognized as a mission work of the RCUS. You have been with us, Lord, and given us what we have needed. We ask that you have been generous and grateful, gracious to us rather, that you have uh, caused the synod and the classes to accept my resignation and approve the means of uh, retirement. But we look at that and we say, Lord, there is much that needs yet to be done for you must provide us another shepherd. And so we ask for that. While we are grateful to know that you will give us one, we ask that you will Bring him to us swiftly. We plead, Father, that you would continue to be with Nathan as he recovers. That you would be with the little Luke Wright. That as his immune system needs to be built up before his next chemotherapy treatment, we ask that you would be with him. That the treatments of the doctors to do that will be successful. And that he may continue to recover from the liver surgery that he had and the cancer that he has been fighting. We pray, Father, for the Roten family. They have uh, been afflicted with a number of medical needs this week. We ask that you would be with them, care for them. And for each of the three who are affected, we ask that you would supply the needs that they have for healing. Whether it's uh, Mike with his necessity of surgery, or whether it is the tests that need to be done, or whether it is the abscessed tooth that needs to be dealt with. We pray, Father, that you would be with the Gross family, particularly. We ask for Ty. COVID is nothing to sneeze at. And you know how to heal it. And you have. And we trust that you will. 
But Evie's immune system is compromised and has been from birth. We ask, Father, that you would not allow her to be afflicted with COVID. We plead for that, Lord, that you would protect her, that the methods and means and attempts that that her family makes will be a blessing and keep her. We pray, Father, that you would continue to be with this congregation. We ask for the consistory meetings this week. We ask that they may be successful in the tasks that they need to do in the reorganization and the terms that we will all see. For Dr. Garrison, as we, Garretson, as he comes to preach to us next week, we ask that you would be with him. We ask, Father, that you would continue to strengthen us, that you would be with Lydia and keep the seizures down. We pray, Father, that you would continue to strengthen us and encourage our hearts to let us rejoice together in you. We pray, Father, that you would continue to work in the denomination, that as Emmanuel has received its funding and its status, so you would cause it to grow. But, Father, we pray that for the other congregations. We think of Waymart and Bluebell, and we plead with you for their sustenance, that you would continue to sustain them. We pray, Father, that you would be with the denomination. You have brought our men back to their tasks in safety. Now we ask, Father, that you would bless them as they grow together, as the congregations continue to grow. We pray, Father, that you would be with your church, wherever it is in the world. We don't believe that we are the limits of your church. We are part of it. But, Father, there are other parts of it, and wherever your name is proclaimed in integrity and truth, we beg of you that you would be there and that you would strengthen them and cause them to grow. We ask that you would cause them to be faithful, whether we know the names of the denominations or not, whether we can pronounce the names of the countries in which the church is or not, whether it's in Kenya or the Congo or down the the west coast of Africa with Reformed Faith and Life, or whether it is in Germany with the Reformation II, or whether it's in Papua New Guinea, or whether it is in Nepal, or in Bangladesh, or in Pakistan. Father, we pray for your church. We plead that that holy Catholic church might be out of the whole human race, not just out of one part of it. And so we plead for your spirit to go before your word wherever it is proclaimed, just as we plead for that here, that as we open your word and proclaim it, that you would be with us, cause us to understand, cause us to grow and to be encouraged by the word that you have spoken, and cause us to be confronted and called to repentance and righteousness. For Jesus' sake we ask this. Amen. I'd like to turn you to John chapter 10. I did not pick the passage for today uh, because of what the catechism was. I was surprised to find the catechism had picked what I had chosen for the passage. But then that demonstrates that I'm not really in charge at all. The Lord is. John chapter 10, beginning at verse 7, reading through verse 21. Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, 
but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. And they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore, my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Now there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings. Many of them said, He has a demon and he's mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? That far as we read from God's word. The eyes of the blind, of course, are the man who was born blind in chapter 9. In chapter 10, as we began it, Jesus defined the true shepherd. He defined the true shepherd as the owner of the flock, as its protector, feeder, restrainer, exerciser, disciplinarian, the only shepherd. The others were thieves and robbers. That did not include the ones whom he had sent and managed, those who reported to him, though they were failures too. But this shepherd is different. He's marked by what he does and what his relationship to the sheep is. And so, to keep in mind as a thought for the sermon, what the good shepherd has done. Points. Number one, he owns the sheep. Point number two, they are more important to him than he is to himself. Point number three, he pays the price for their living forever. If I may, point one, beginning at verse seven. Jesus said again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Notice, please, he did not say, I am the doorkeeper. He did not say, I'm the door of the sheepfold. He's the owner who hired the doorkeeper, who built the sheepfold, who controls the doorway. These are his sheep. He gives the orders. He controls the doorway. So he becomes the door. Yes, there's a physical door there, but he's the one who controls its opening and its closing, who it shuts in, who it shuts out. He's the door itself. You see, the relationship that he has with his sheep is much deeper than a hired shepherd or a delegated shepherd. He's their owner. 
he has an intimate relationship with them. In the allegory, the metaphor, he's the one who profits from them. He's the one for whom it is appropriate for him to be caring for them and doing all these things for them so that he makes the money at the end. That's the image that's being used here. It is only an image to proclaim more than its words say. It is a spiritual teaching. All spiritual teaching by which the souls are fed consists in him. No, that's not a quote from me. It's a quote from Calvin. I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. Literally in Greek, it's as many as came before me are only thieves and robbers. That's because they came with their own authority. He came, he sent others before him, but they were failures. They didn't live up to what he was going to do. They would become discouraged and they would run away. They would fail because they weren't strong enough. Sometimes they were blessed and they were strong beyond anything that one expected of them. Something about a uh, 10 or 11 year old boy in a slingshot and a giant 9 foot 9 inches tall. But all false, all, false, all false teaching is being contrasted to the gospel. If Jesus is the true shepherd, if Jesus is the good shepherd and he's what the shepherd is supposed to be, then those who came before him were a contrast to what they should have been, to what God was sending in him. So they were a contrast to the gospel. The gospel, of course, being the good news of how God cares for his people and what price he paid for their redemption. All of the false prophets that Jesus is referring to, and he's probably referring to those immediately in the context of the passage, the Pharisees, etc., but probably the Pharisees all the way back to their beginning, which would have been sometime shortly after the reconstruction of Jerusalem, after the return from the captivity. All of those who came, now you need to think about that for just a minute. When Jesus comes, John the Baptist has come before him by a matter of weeks, maybe years. But for 400 years before that, there had been no prophet. There had been silence from God for 400 years. So what God had done was he had uh, contrasted what those men had been teaching for those 400 years. And that's what the rabbis are who are being spoken of when the Pharisees quote them and throw them at Jesus. The Pharisees had made these up. The Pharisees had decided that this is what the scripture must mean. Of course, they were wrong. Jesus says, all of the things that you've had in your experience, all of the things that you've been getting in the theology that you've been being taught for these 400 years at least, has been false teaching. God decided not to give you a true teacher. There may have been a few small ones, but we don't know about them. Until suddenly, John's father spoke to Gabriel. 
And God suddenly began to teach again and speak to them again because the true shepherd was coming. And the true shepherd is, of course, Jesus. Calvin says about this that uh, the prophets are being contrasted to the faithful teachers, the false prophets. There were faithful teachers before. There was Moses, there was Elijah, there was Elisha. There were the prophets that we have writing, Isaiah and Jeremiah. They were good prophets. They taught the truth. But the 400 years of silence is what he's talking about here. Calvin says that the false teachers include also the Gentiles who are outside the church and outside the faith. The teachers of the world. The teachers of philosophy. Science. Politics. The teachers of those who are looking at the world and saying, this is what it is. Read in Romans chapters 1 and 2 about what's there. These are the ones who were false teachers. All the way back to before Noah. All the way back to after Noah. All the way back through the history of mankind. All the way back through all of the things that you and I know from the sciences that have come since the Reformation. Since the Enlightenment. These are false teachers. False prophets. And I stress that because as you look at what they teach, you find it is in contradiction with what God said. I've done considerable work in the sciences, a little bit in philosophy, a little bit in psychology. And I can tell you that the thing that most of the secular world does is it throws out the Bible in favor of its thinking process of its own wisdom. It comes and says, I know better than what the Bible was. We have learned more over the years. We are smarter than what the, those men were. They were ignorant, and they believed uh, things like uh, there was a God. I can remember being confronted in my childhood with somebody who said to me, Jay, you realize, of course, you're building your life on the ridiculous assumption that there's a God. It wasn't one of my teachers, but he was one of my teacher's prize students. These are the ones that we need to watch for. In Romans 1 and verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. That's what science, that's what modern thinking process, that's what political uh, theory of today throw out. That there's a God who's in charge of all this. And that what God says contradicts everything that the world says. The sheep did not hear them because God called those sheep and he has protected those sheep even, from the, even through the years. Those, however, who were part of the visible church, who were led astray by the imposters, were not part of the church, is what's being said here. The sheep did not hear them. False sheep may have heard them. False prophets, false sheep. The whole point of the door, the whole point of guarding the door. And Jesus says in verse 16, Other sheep I have. That includes, according to commentators, especially Calvin, those wandering 
as well as those who are not Jewish or churched, or those who have strayed for a particular time away from the church and away from the faith. Other sheep, Jesus says, I have. Just because we are here doesn't mean we are the only ones. Now, election says that sheep were sheep before they were born, but they are gathered into the body at God's effectual calling. And so the patience and the mercy of the God who gathers, even those who stray, is shown. And there is no implication in this that the sheep are without sin in this life. But they are continually dealt with by the shepherd. I suppose we probably should take a minute and explain that a little bit. What's a shepherd? Okay, I know he takes care of sheep. What does he do for the sheep? Does he cook spinach for them? No, he goes out before they go out to the field, to the pasture, and he checks the pasture out to make sure that there's nothing in it that they could eat that would be harmful. And then he makes sure that there's nothing in the pasture that they could harm themselves with, pits that they could fall in, things that they wouldn't be able to handle. And then he goes and he makes sure that the water source in there is not a quickly flowing stream, but it's a shallow pond. That's because sheep have this bad habit. The first ones go into the water to drink. The ones that come behind push them out further into the water. And eventually they get far enough out in the water that they can't stay above, unless the water's shallow and still. And then they can still get out. And the shepherd has to make sure that that's the water source. He also has to make sure that there aren't uh, the kinds of places that uh, a predator could hide. And he has to be prepared to deal with the predator. He has to be prepared to take care of the sheep. Yeah. Take care of the sheep. What does it mean to take care of the sheep? Do you ever have a child? And you look at the child and you say, you shouldn't run with a pair of scissors? Why? Because that's against the law? No, because it's dangerous. Oh. First of all, who said it was dangerous? Secondly, uh, have you ever known a child to listen to you? That's why they make scissors for kids that have no sharp points but rounded tips. Because we know the kids aren't going to listen. But there are other things too. Do you ever tell your children there are places they shouldn't go? Do you ever tell them there are things that they shouldn't do? Do your children appreciate that? I'm big enough. I can do it. Who are you to tell me this? Or... They'll never know. I can get away with it. What happens when a child is told to do something that he doesn't want to do? He resents that. And it drives a wedge between himself and his parent. Just like it does with a sheep. What happens if he receives a warning? The warning is not, that's dangerous, The warning is, don't do that today, or don't do this particular thing, or if you do this thing, look out, here's what's going to happen next. And the child says, how do you know? 
I'm smarter than that. I can make sure that doesn't happen. And please don't tell me you didn't say that. Maybe you didn't, but I did. And I resented my parents because of it. So the shepherd needs to be aware that one of the things he's going to have is if he's doing his job, he's going to be resented by the sheep. At least by the wandering sheep. And probably by the true sheep, too, for a time. So a shepherd's somebody who lives with the constant concept that he's going to be discouraged, disappointed, and uh, objected to. Jesus goes on in verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Christ's effectual call is our guarantee. If you go in by the door, if I open the door for you, uh, what happens if a sheep comes to the, to the, ship, to the uh, sheepfold and the door is closed? Does he have a key to open it and let himself in? No. He needs to be let in by the doorkeeper who is the employee of the owner, who has marked out the sheep that are his. Christ's effectual call is our guarantee, even if some sins remain in us. Even if there are times when we want to reject or react to or rebel against the things that the shepherd says. God's effectual call is still our guarantee. That's what Paul said in Romans 7, 24 and 25, which we read earlier. The thieves, verse 10, they only come to steal and to destroy. Those who teach heresy, or teach that you have the right to determine what Scripture says, or which sins are worse than others, or which sins are not as bad as others, or which sins still apply. Those who don't take the Scripture and teach that are teaching heresy. And the heresy is only designed to take someone away from Jesus Christ. And the only ones who could be taken away from Jesus Christ are the sheep who wander, except for those sheep who are in sin for a time. And the constant care of Jesus Christ for those who are really his sheep, but still in sin or but going back to sin for a time, is a demonstration of his mercy. But those who teach heresy are out to destroy the church. They're out to destroy it when they say, uh, God, after all, can't speak in human language. He can only speak to your mind. And so he will open your mind to what the scripture was supposed to say. And that's what the Bible is. Uh, And uh, if it says something to you that it doesn't say to somebody else, uh, that's okay because there's more to the scripture than one answer. Yeah, it's Karl Barth, just in case you're wondering. But it's around in too many churches. Let me apply that for a minute. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, the Holy Spirit alone has the authority to tell us what truth is and what heresy is. He dwells in those who are gathered. And so he will restrain and protect the elect. He's the means the good shepherd uses to control the sheep. He's the employee, if you will. That the good shepherd has said, this is your job. 
Jesus calls him the Spirit of Christ. We refer to him as the third person of the Trinity. He has the only power to do that. He's the one who has the authority, not any one of the teachers coming over the wall. Not any one of the sheep who thinks he knows more than God. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is the true shepherd. This is the high priest that makes the intercession for us. The one who maintains us. The one who restrains us. The one who disciplines us, but who never causes us to be removed because he's committed to work with us by orders. Only those who are not sheep will be allowed to leave permanently. And there will be some. If I may, point number two. Those sheep of his are more important to God, to Jesus, than Jesus is to himself. If I can take verse 11. I am the good shepherd. Eh, Acceptable translation. Not quite as emphatic as the Greek is. I am the shepherd, the good one. Because he'd been talking about other shepherds, false shepherds. He'd been talking about a true shepherd. He says, I'm the different one. I'm different than all of them. They are more important to me than I am to myself. Look at it this way. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Why? In even human terms. If a wolf comes and he's attacking the sheep and you've got 250 sheep uh, and you can keep one sheep as the victim and the wolf will be satisfied because he's got to eat that one sheep and you've got 249 left, okay, you're fine. Unless that one sheep is more important to you than you are to yourself. If you go back to the sheepfold and you had 100 sheep and you get to the sheepfold and there's only 99, what do you do? Well, if you're a hireling or if you're a shepherd who's tired and been busy all day, you probably say, well, okay, we lost one today. What does Jesus do? In the parable he gives, the one closes the door of the sheepfold, gives the control to the doorkeeper, and then goes back out to find the sheep at the cost of his own time, his own rest, maybe even part of his own body. The good shepherd, the good one, gives his life for the sheep. Now there may be times when he can't do that. Okay? But the good shepherd... To the good shepherd, the sheep are not more important up to a point than he is. The good shepherd fights for them, whether it's a lion or a bear. The good shepherd does not fight until it is deadly and then break off the fight. The good shepherd substitutes his life so that the sheep don't get eaten. This is substitutionary atonement. 
He's not thinking about the daily sins that he will fight off the tempter's attack. He's speaking of the guilt of sin before the wrath of God which takes to hell. You see, death is not body here. Death is the soul. That's the word. It's in Greek. Jesus endures hell for us to buy us back from his own justice. No one else could. No one else would. The good shepherd, Jesus, is in a category all alone. A hireling? But a hireling is who he was not the shepherd. One who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he's a hireling. Doesn't not, does not care about the sheep. He's there for a paycheck. Okay, he may be weakling physically. He may be morally a weakling. But he's really only a clock puncher. I'm here to say I was here. Whatever it takes, if I can do it, fine. If I don't do it, eh, to what? So what? And when the day's over, that's it. As long as I get paid. He doesn't care about the sheep. He doesn't own the sheep. He only cares about the paycheck. The owner may remove a shepherd who is too old or too ill or too weak. But that happens by the owner's hand, not the fear or weakness of the shepherd. And I must confess that that is part of me at this point. In verse 14, Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd, the shepherd, the good one, and I know my sheep, and I am known by my own. The word here means a relationship. If you want an example of it, there's Mary's protest to Gabriel. When Gabriel tells her she's going to bear a son, she says, how can this be? For I have not known a man. She didn't have a father. She didn't grow up with boys. No, it's talking about a relationship and intimacy. It's a relationship that uh, she knows she doesn't have. And that's the same word that's here. I have a relationship with my sheep. And my sheep have a relationship with me. It's not that they can spot me in a crowd. It's not that I can spot them because they've got a mark on them that says they're mine. We're intimately acquainted with each other. In verse 15... As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Again, the word is intimacy there. But what's strange about it is, as the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. As the Father is intimately related to me, and I am intimately related to the Father, And I lay down my life for the sheep because in the father's estimation and in my estimation, the sheep are more important than I am. It's their salvation that's the object. It's protecting them and keeping them. The father does this. The son does this. The Holy Spirit does this. We're talking about a triune God. But in verse 16, Jesus says, Other sheep I have that are not of this fold. They're not in the visible church yet, perhaps. Some whom we cannot imagine will ever be. The Jews had that problem. Couldn't imagine that Gentiles would ever be. 
I'm sure we have a list of people we couldn't imagine that God would ever convert. I'm also sure that the early church had a list of them, and one of them was somebody named Saul of Tarsus. So there are sheep that Jesus has to call from other places. That's where Matthew 28, 18 and 20 come in. Okay? This is what I want you to do, he says. Let me read it to be sure. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. An interesting passage could be a sermon all by itself. Perhaps someday it will. But the idea, and the first idea here is, there are, God, there are Christians in other places than here in Gettysburg. We don't have a problem with that. After all, we have a church in Pella. We have a daughter congregation there. And we're testifying that there are people there. I understand that there are people in Bedford. I understand that there are people in other cultures, like in Nepal or Indonesia or the Philippines or Papua New Guinea. So what is my responsibility to them? If Jesus' responsibility to them is that they are more important to him than he is to himself, and I am supposed to be part of the body of Christ, to think like Christ is, then they are supposed to be more important to me than I am to myself. And I need to be proclaiming God's word to them, or assisting in proclaiming it, even if I can't. In the Philippines, they speak English. I've had the privilege of doing that. I don't think I could do that in any of the other nations that are spoken of there, uh, simply because I don't speak their language. But I have to be careful for them, careful for their hearing of the gospel. There are other sheep, things, ones who have not yet been born. Anyone who has not yet been given life from above by the Holy Spirit. Other sheep than the ones who live in Gettysburg here and are among us or the other churches that are appropriate before Christ. Uh, and uh, they live here, but they haven't been given life by the Holy Spirit. John chapter 3, the first eight verses. But among them, there might be some who are his sheep. It's appropriate for me to be seeking to teach them, to reach them. Not just call them to faith, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. The gospel is not limited to believe in Jesus. The gospel is deeper than that and more more important. So what we have here, if I may apply it, is substitutionary atonement. That means that Jesus is taking hell in our place. Beside holding us up in sorrows and pain and persecution or the breakup of our families, he bears the pain with us and hell for us. He never lets go of his sheep. This is his choice, his authority. He said, no one can come to me unless my father draws him. Human action is not the original action. Our response is a response to his actions. We respond. We don't initiate. And we have no clue as to who will come to the faith until we see the results that are always, and those results are always tainted. For we remain sinners, redeemed sinners, 
but sinners nonetheless. So let me remind you of point three. He pays the price for our living forever. Verse 17. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. This command I have from the Father. The anger of the Father's justice, and Christ's justice, is visited on the Son instead of on us. This is the only acceptable price for sin, our sin. And the Son has the power to lay down his life and to take it up again because, well, there's no animosity between the Father and the Son. The Son isn't mad at the Father because I demand that you do this. And it's not a feeling of of rebellion on the part of the Father because the Son's going around behind my back. Okay? That the Son has frustrated the Father's justice. There's complete unity, complete response in the price and in what the price gains. No one takes it from Christ, not the Father, not Satan, not the Holy Spirit. He says, I lay it down myself. I have the authority. I have the power to do this. Jesus is not contradicting the Father, nor working around his will, but this is the will of the triune God, which has determined our salvation. In Genesis 2, verse 7, Adam and Eve are told, In the day that you eat of the fruit of this tree, your death will be certain. That's the sentence for sin. So if I may apply a little bit. Death equals separation from God. It equals separation. First thing Adam and Eve did when they sinned was they covered themselves to hide themselves from each other. Second thing they did was they hid in the garden from God. Death equals separation from God. Because when the sin is confronted, God exiles them from the garden and puts the cherubs there to guard the way to the tree of life so that they can't get in. And then he stops talking to them face to face like he had been doing in the garden. The fellowship between them is severed. That's what death is. If it's severed permanently, it's hell. If it's severed for a time, it's discipline. The sentence of death is for eternity, unless. In Matthew 25, verse 41, he will say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The sentence is for eternity. But there's a promise of eternity too with God, eternal reunion. In Matthew 25, verse 34, The king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So the justice and the mercy of God are eternal. The justice and the mercy of God are what Jesus and the Father have worked out in this way. That Jesus would pay the price. That the Holy Spirit would come and live in us and give us life and that we would be allowed then to live in God's presence for eternity. In 1 Corinthians 15. Now this I say, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we all will be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. 
For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruption, corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So that when this corruption has put on, corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. That's what we're looking at. That's what the passage is. But let's finish the last three verses. Now there was a division among the Jews because of these sayings. Many of them said, he has a demon. Why do you listen to him? This guy's crazy. This guy's worse than crazy. But others said, this isn't the way demons talk. These are not the words of one who has a demon. And can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Can he open the physical eyes? Can he open the spiritual eyes? He can open the spiritual eyes as easily, in fact, by the same means as he opens the physical eyes. By grace, by his power, by the mercy of God. Bow with me in prayer. We come before you, Lord. We look at what you have said. And as we look at it, we are bemused a little bit. We look at it and we say, you're just. And yet you're so merciful, you'll take the penalty of your justice in our place. And our minds simply fail. We say, God is. This is what he is. How unlike anything else in our creation. And how wonderful his promises are. Father, we thank you for those promises. And Lord Jesus, for that sacrifice. Amen.